Awesome. Okay, so Thursday we really got into, we started to get into the mimer and read inside. And just to recap that we're learning Maim Rabim by the Alter Rebbe, which is based on Pasha's Noach. And we're trying to understand a bit about the relevance of the flood of Noach that destroyed the world then, um, that relevance in our own lives. And we're connecting it to the opening verse of this Mimer, which is from Shir Hashirim, Song of Songs, Mayim Rabim lo yuchlu lechabot et ha'ava, that the many waters are not able to extinguish the love. And on Thursday, we defined each of these terms. We said that Mayim Rabim, the many waters, are referring to what, what's called in the Mimer, Tirdot ha'parnasa, which means the challenge of making a living. And we defined it a little bit more broadly as the day-to-day challenges of life, okay? Not necessarily the traumas or the evil things that happen or the really difficult parts of serving God specifically, but rather just the general fact that it's hard to get through the day, okay? And make a living, etc. We said that those are the Mayim Rabim, the many waters, because it could feel like we're drowning in them, right? And then we said that ha'ahava, the love that the many waters cannot extinguish, is referring to the natural love that every single one of our godly soul has for God. It's called ahava mesuteret, which means a hidden love that we inherited from our forefathers, that every single Jew is born with, this natural, innate, hidden love for God. And no matter how much we struggle and how much we feel like we're drowning in the physical world, the waters can never, ever succeed in washing away this love that is deep down in our hearts for God. That's basically what we established last week. And so we're going to continue on this line now by basically asking a question on that, which is that that sounds lovely, right? That's great. And that's, I'm sure that I I noticed it was emphasized throughout the weekend and you're going to get this emphasized a lot in Chabad that a Jew is a Jew is a Jew and you can never, that can never be taken away from you no matter what you've been through, no matter, um, you know, where you've grown up. And that's lovely, but the next part of the equation, the question we're going to ask is, okay, basically, so what? Okay, so the waters can never wash away this love, but it definitely feels at some points of our life that it is, right? There are some points in our life where we feel like we're drowning, where it's just so hard to get through the day, where there's a challenge that we're confronting. And in that moment, it's very hard to feel that hidden, deep-down love for God. So it's really nice to know that, okay, it can never be washed away, but... What, what am I supposed to do with that information? You guys get, get like, okay, so like now what, basically? Mm-hmm. So that's what the next step, step we're going into in the Mimer is now what, okay? Now that we've established that this love can... She's not happy? Okay. She really wants to learn Hasidus. <laughs> no problem. Okay, I'm, I'm going to call Rachel and see if she... She's like a little bit distracting, I know. I'm sorry, ladies. But... Uh, okay. So Thank you, morning. So we're basically going to the next step, which is now that we've established that the water doesn't wash away the love, and no matter what we face, the love is still buried there deep down, we need to understand, okay, but what's the point in these waters? So have you anyone heard of Reb Levi Yitzchak of Barditchev? He was a good friend of the Alter Rebbe. So you know who the Alter Rebbe is, we're learning his uh, mimer now. He lived in that generation, and he was a Rebbe. He was a very, very um, great tzaddik, and he had a love for every single Jew that was just tremendous. There are many stories about him, but there's one instance. He had a chassid. He had a disciple. I never know exactly how to translate chassid, a student, a disciple, um, a follower, and who, who, was, who, was, a very, who was a very holy man, um, but he, was, he struggled very much to make a living. He always just 
struggled financially. And one year before Rosh Hashanah, before the high holidays, he approached Reb Levi Yitzchak and he said to him that he knows that on Rosh Hashanah, it's established how much a person's going to earn that year. On the day of Rosh Hashanah, God decides how much every single one of us is going to earn financially for the coming year. And so he said to him, to his Rebbe, he said, I know that you've got some connections up on high. <laughs> and I'm wondering if you can use your, you know, your phone line to find out for me how much I'm going to earn this coming year. Because every year, I, at, by the end of the year, I've made money to survive. I get through the year, I get through the day, but it's so distracting. It's so much work to try and get the money. And the worry that comes with not knowing how much I'm actually going to make just distracts me from learning Torah. And I want to learn more Torah and I want to do more mitzvahs. I want to be more spiritual. So if you just tell me exactly how much I'm going to earn, I'll do the work, but I'll, I'll be able to take that worry away. Which is a fair, it's a fair request. And Rabbi Levi Yitzchak replied to him, who says that it's Judaism, your Judaism that God wants? Maybe it's the challenge that he wants. Maybe it's the struggle. And this is not... This is not because God is cruel or God is mean, that he's just putting us out here like players on a chessboard to fight it out. But rather, there's some integrity. There's an integrity in our service of God that can only come about through facing challenges. And so the next part of the Mimer that we're going to address now is what is the upside of this Mimer Abim? What is the point of it, of these struggles and we're going to connect the Mayim Rabbim, the many waters from the verse of Shira Shirim, with the many, many, many waters of the flood of Noah that destroyed the world. And then ask the next question, which is, what is the upside of the flood? Why did God destroy the world with the flood? And what was the benefit of that? Because we know that God doesn't just do things because he's angry and impulsive, but rather there is a reason and a point behind everything and every step. So we're going to be connecting these two ideas now of the many waters being the challenges having an advantage in our, actually in our service of God and have giving an advantage to our soul as well as the fact that the many waters that seem to be just destructive, that destroy the world in the time of Noah, having an upside, the upside to the flood. Okay, so let's get inside. Again, we're on page 22 on the left side, page 5 in the middle. The English is since the divine soul. Okay, and again, we're going to be reading in the Hebrew and the English. If you're following along in the Hebrew and you want me to repeat a word, let me know. I'm going too fast or too slow, just let me know. Okay. So, we finished off with the verse from Shir Hashirim last week saying, It's flames are flames of fire, a fiery love for Hashem, in which we compared the godly soul to a flame which is always reaching upward. Our godly soul is in a constant state of love and desire for Hashem, but it's concealed and we don't feel that because we also have an animal soul that is very loud and present and that is just struggling day to day to survive. Okay, so, Shehi Hanefesh Elokit, since the godly soul, Shekodam Hitlabshusa, before it was enclosed and invested, Begufa Gashmi, into our physical body because our soul transcends our body, right? A soul is not just limited to how it manifests in our, in our physical body. It exists in levels and realms much beyond that as well. And it's not limited by time and space. But once this soul has, an element of it has been extracted and put into a limited physical human form, before this happened, before it was enclosed in our body, it was enjoying from the rays of the Shekhinah. The Shekhinah is referring to the presence 
uh, the, the, the revealed presence of God in different worlds, in different spiritual worlds. And so what was happening was that before the godly soul descended into our body, it was up there, up on high, what we call heaven, right? It was in the spiritual realms, and it was basking in the rays of God. Okay, sweetie? Here. Here you go. It was totally united, the Ain Sof Baruch with the infinity of God. Does anyone want to hold her? Yes. <laughs> Sometimes she just likes variety. <laughs> okay. So before the godly soul came down into our body, it was up on high in heaven. It was basking in the rays of God's holiness, of God's light, of the Torah. It didn't have, basically, it didn't have any challenges. It, when it had to go from one step or transition to the next, it wasn't difficult you know, to go from basking in the rays of God's infinity to praying and praising God, to learning some Torah. It's all one transition to the next. It's very smooth. It's very simple. Just like with the angels as well. It says that the angels pray to God three times a day and our, um, our prayers correspond with the times that the angels actually praise God. And they're constantly praying and praising God. But for an angel, it's not actually leaving one thing behind to go to the next thing. Its entire existence in reality is God, is praising God, is loving God, is learning the Torah. And our soul, before it comes into the body, is in the same state. Basically, there's no friction and there's no challenge whatsoever. Velazot, and therefore, gam achar hitlabshuta bugufagashmi, even after it invests itself into a physical body, la sok binyanim gashmim, and now it has to invest itself and deal with physical problems and challenges, Shehena Nikraim Mayim Rabin, which we called by the name of the many waters, in Kolzen, nonetheless, Lo Yuchlu Lechabota, it is impossible to extinguish this flame of the godly soul, Meliot Tamid Bepchinat Ava, to be in a constant state of love, Vachuka Nifla, and a wondrous yearning and desire, Laalot Vilikalel Lamala, to ascend and be included in the oneness of God up above. So this is, we've said this so far. This is elaborating on the idea that the many waters cannot extinguish the love. The status of the godly soul before it was invested into the body and after it invested, was invested in the body remains the same, even though it's now covered over by layers of flesh and by an animal soul that is just trying to survive in this world. The Adaraba, and here's the catch, here's the, okay, but what's the, what's the whole point of this? <clears throat> on the contrary, not only is the love not extinguished, However, through the godly soul being invested in the challenges, the many waters that we described above, it's able to reach an even higher level than before it descended into this world, as will be explained. So, so far what we've said, what the altar is saying is that the fact that the godly soul's love for God is not extinguished, it doesn't end there. But rather, through the godly soul leaving its spiritual perch up on high, coming down into our bodies, it actually gets an elevation. It's able to reach a level that's even higher than the level it found itself on before it came down into the body, which is a very high spiritual level. Our souls come, all of us, from different levels. Or if, uh, I'm going to get into the Sephiris and the worlds shortly, but... I'll throw it out there that all of our souls come from what's called Malchus of Atzillus and then Chochum of Atzillus. We're going to get into that. We're going to get into that a little bit later. But our souls come from a general place, a level that is tremendously high spiritual level. 
And through coming all the way down to our world, which is called in Tanya, the lowest of the lowest of the lowest possible spiritual worlds that exists, the least amount of godly energy and light is felt here and present and revealed, excuse me. Somehow, and we're going to try and understand why, through the, the godly soul coming down into this world, being distracted and confronted by the challenges of this world, it's able to actually reach heights that are even higher than before it came down, okay, than where it started off. And now we're going to start to try and understand why. What is the upside of challenges? Why does God make us deal with challenges instead of letting us peacefully just serve him, sit, you know, put in our effort a little bit in the morning, you know, put your hour in online, make your money for the day, and then be able to sit and learn Torah and do good deeds and take care of everybody else. What is the upside of us having to face challenge after challenge in this world? And we're going to... But to understand that, first we're going to go back to the question, what is the upside of the flood? So now we're going to transition to the story of Noah and to the story of the flood that destroyed the world. So, these many waters that we discussed earlier that are the challenges of life, are also described as the waters of Noah, the flood waters that came to destroy the world in the time of Noah. As is written in Isaiah, Yeshaya, Asher Nishbati Meavur Me Noach, I swore regarding the waters of Noach, Od al Haaretz, that I will never return them to the land. Ken Nishbati, so too I have promised, Mektsof Alaich, Omegarbach, that I will no longer become angry and rebuke you. So Isaiah was a prophet and he spoke in the name of God. And one of the things that God told the Jewish people through Isaiah was that just as I promised, uh, do you guys know of the famous promise that God made to Noah after the flood? He gave him or showed him a rainbow and he said, I'm never going to destroy the world in the way that I did um, in your time again. There were floods that came afterwards that destroyed cities or parts of the world, but never God kept his promise and he never actually destroyed um, the whole world again with a flood or with anything, which is why actually in Jewish culture, we don't, Um, we see the rainbow actually as a little bit more of a negative sign because we see the rainbow as an idea of God saying, I'm remembering my promise. It's a little bit hard for me right now, um, but I'm remembering my promise that I'm not going to destroy the world no matter what the world ends up doing or how low the people of the world sink. Um, So the verse is saying that just as I promised regarding the waters of Noah, the flood, I will never return it to the world, so too, basically, in the future, I will never have to rebuke anybody or get angry again. And the point of bringing this verse here is just to show us that the flood waters are called Noah, the waters of Noah. The many waters, the Mayim Rabim, that destroyed the world are also called Noah. Now, we're going to have to understand what does the name Noah mean? Because in Hasidus, we take every single name every single word very seriously. Nothing is random and written in the Torah just by chance. Noach's name wasn't just Noach because his parents called him Noach. Noach wasn't just chosen to be the one person to, to literally repopulate the entire world and be saved from the flood because of some random chance, but rather his name alludes to something very deep about him. So does anybody know modern Hebrew here? Anyone? Little? Does anyone know what la Noach means? Noach? Um, not that I know of. Not that I know of regarding the rain. Um, la noach, noach means to rest. It's a good word to know. 
Um, it's a good word to know if you ever want to rest. You could just tell people, I want to, like, leave me alone. I want to rest. And so Noach means to rest. And it also comes from the word Naicha in Aramaic. Naicha nun yud yud chet aleph, or however you want to spell it in English, it doesn't matter. Um, Naicha, which also means pleasure. So, ki hine... <laughs> You can pass her on to Hannah. <laughs> just pass her down. <laughs> so we're going to try and understand what does Noah represent and what do the waters of Noah, the floodwaters that destroyed the world, represent so that we can then understand what was the upside of these waters. So we're at the bottom of page 6 on page 22 on the right side. Kihine, the reason that the flood is called Me Noah is Noah unaycha derucha because Noah is referring to a peaceful, restful spirit. Which is what we call rest. Shvita, milshon, from the language of Shabbat. You guys know what Shabbat means? What does Shabbat mean? The day of rest. Shabbat means the same thing as Noach. It means rest. Like a man who rests from his work. So let's just take a step back here and try and understand what we're saying about Noach and what we're saying about rest. So to flip to the next page in the meantime. When we speak about rest, the concept of rest is very much alluded to in the idea of Shabbat. So we're going to speak about Shabbat. That God worked for six days in creating the world, right? And then on the seventh day, what did God do? He rested. He rested. He didn't do anything, basically. And so this idea of rest, there's actually there's a, a debate in Judaism whether Shabbat is a culmination of the week or whether Shabbat is a preparation for the following week. So is Shabbat connected to the previous week or is Shabbat the beginning of the next week? The answer is really that it's both. But Hasidus actually really sees Shabbat and this whole concept of rest as a culmination of the previous week. We don't experience Shabbat for the next week, but rather we work. No, no, no. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm mixing this up right now. The truth is that Hasidus says that Shabbat that Shabbat is for the next week. The idea is that not the whole case, which is actually a little bit different than what I'm about to say, but I'm going to finish the point because I don't want to mislead you. Hasidus explains one side of the argument, which is that the whole week is there in order, is that the whole week is not there in order for us to have Shabbat, but rather Shabbat is there to give us energy for the following week. So some people see the whole week as, or even our whole life, and our whole lifetime as Jews, as a preparation for when we die and then we go up to heaven. And that's one way of looking at it, that the whole week is there in order to serve Shabbat. Or you can see Shabbat is serving the whole week, which is the idea that through us resting and elevating ourselves on Shabbat and gaining spiritual energy and power, we can then go into the next week with a lot more fervor and with a lot more energy. Basically, that the whole point of life is this world. It's not that we need to get over this world to get to the future world, but rather that we need to be in this world and Shabbat gives us the energy to do that. Okay. Is she being distracting? <laughs> Sorry, she's quiet. So. so the idea of Shabbat, the idea of rest, is that what, what are we doing when we're resting? What, what are we actually doing? Allowing like, our bodies to heal. 
Right. So on a physical level, if we've exerted ourselves physically and then we rest, right, like rest days when somebody's training, we're literally allowing our bodies to heal and to memorize and encode all of the things that we just challenged ourselves and learned um, in the previous whatever time it was. And so if we were physically exerting ourselves and we rest, then our, our physical body is resting. If we were mentally exerting ourselves and we rest, we are no longer mentally exerting ourselves and we let our mind rest. So whatever rest we're doing, the idea is that we stop doing the, the efforts that we were putting in, we stop, and what, what ends up happening is that it get the, all of the work that we ended up doing before we rested culminates and rises up basically to another level. Yes? So on Shabbat, since you can't use like electricity, when did that become like, when did that rabbinic law come about? Because I feel like electricity could potentially help you like relax more and make your life easier. Mm. And I feel like not using electricity, some parts of it is like allowing your body to rest, like, recharge right. but i also think some of it makes your life harder more difficult for sure so how does yeah. that kind of fit into this concept right the idea of rest it's a yeah. good question because when we think of rest we don't think of walking three miles to shore right we right. think of yeah. driving in your car yeah. it's a very it's a very valid question and so when we speak about rest on shabbat we're not actually speaking about physical rest mm. we're speaking about spiritual rest and we don't know the idea is basically we don't know how to rest god has to yeah. tell us how to rest yeah. and the idea of that is that what we're actually celebrating which is literally what what we're talking about here what we're actually celebrating we're actually resting from in shabbat is all of the efforts that we put in during the week we're now actually elevating them to another level so just as let's say let's say not mental not physically but mentally you were working all week on a project and you were working really really hard it probably involved a little bit of physical exertion, but mainly mentally. And then you have the weekend and you stop working. What ends up happening is that all of that work that you ended up doing gets elevated to another level where suddenly you can sit back and you can actually internalize all of the doing, doing, doing that you did. You can sit with it and it gives you an entirely new perspective and you can start to pick up on ways that you can do things better and ways that you can do things differently and get motivation to continue for the following week. We see this with ourselves. When if, so, if somebody never rests, they get burnout, right? And burnout is the idea that you've never had time to actually take stock of what you're doing. And so you're just doing, doing, and you don't even know what you're, you're, you're just fully outputting and you don't even know what your, what your goal is anymore, what you're doing, where you're going. You don't, you've lost your perspective and the work ends up being just work and it doesn't get raised up to another level. So on, on, when we rest in general, not, not Shabbat for a moment, we're literally raising up everything that we've done to another level. We're giving ourselves a new perspective that we can look at it from. We can only do that by stopping to do that, which we were doing before. And so the idea is that it's a, literally it's a culmination of everything that we've done, that we've put in, culminates and comes together and forms something entirely new almost when we allow ourselves to rest and i think that i don't know exactly what happens in our body when you're training when you're having off days maybe people who like go to the gym know this more but our if you don't ever take rest days you're going to literally the work you're putting is at some point going to start regressing right your body is going to get less healthy if you never ever ever take a break so there's something going on when you take a physical or mental break that takes all the work that you did and puts it all together and actually raises it up to a new level and allows you to continue to grow and the same thing happens for us on shabbat so shabbat if shabbat literally meant weekend have a rest first of all what would usually end up happening is that our days would look exactly like every other day we're not very good 
at imposing self-rest on ourselves. Um, we'd be on our, you know, we'd be on our phones just like any other day. Maybe we'd be, maybe we wouldn't be going to work because people have Saturdays, but maybe we'd be doing a project in the garage or we'd be taking on something else or a side hustle, right? No one's allowed to actually rest today, right? The weekend is for your side hustle and for your new small business that you're opening in your garage or whatever. Um, God, in order for us to truly know how to rest, we actually need God to teach us. Um, and again, so the rest is not physical rest from the physical exertion we were putting in throughout the week, because if it was, we'd, we'd definitely be driving to shul instead of walking, right? Um, um, however, it's rather, it's an idea that we're taking a step back. The whole week we've been working not only physically on our jobs, but also spiritually. We've been confronting challenges and trying to find God within the whole picture and where I stand and where's my relationship with God and where's the higher purpose. We've been working, we've been struggling. There's been obstacles, obstacle after obstacle on our path, which very often looks like trying to make a living or trying to get through a semester of college so that one day you can make a living. It's all connected very much to that, to making a living. And... We're struggling, we're, we're, we're getting challenged and it's a challenge to serve God because everything's so distracting. The idea of Shabbat is to say stop. Step away from the distractions, step away from the struggle and reconnect to who you really are. Because when you do that, all of the work that you did in the previous week gets raised up with you to this new level that is Shabbat and allows us to actually completely reach new heights. So the prerequisite for rest is work. You cannot rest if you haven't worked. And I always bring the example of COVID that like many of us during Corona might have just like not been doing anything, right? And it didn't feel very good. It didn't feel like a weekend. It wasn't like, yeah, it felt something was wrong. And the reason was because we didn't have that cycle that we need, which is that we put the work in and then we rest. When you have rest without work, it's not actually rest. It's you're on spilkas and you feel this, it's unsettling, right? So true rest means that the work came before and then we're gathering up all of that work and we're elevating it usually into our minds where we can process it, we can take a step back, we can look at it from a new perspective and then we can get energy and clock to continue. And so again, in our spiritual lives, we're struggling throughout the week with the, what we call the main noch, the waters of noch, the challenges, the mayim rabim. We're trying to find God within the struggle of making a living and passing the test and getting through whatever challenge we have. And then on Shabbat, we take a step back so that we can gather our strength, reconnect, and get a new perspective on all that work that we've been doing. Yeah. Do you feel that it's like common for people to find like just as much of a challenge to rest? Like, do you think that that rest can feel challenging, can feel like work? Or do you think that that's like not what you should be feeling on Shabbat? So there's different elements of the rest of Shabbat, right? There's the laws of how God says you need to have these things in place in order for your soul, in order to, to, to get the spiritual rest, which is Shabbat. And so some people find it harder than others. Very often, if it's something you were born into, then most people don't find it too hard. Mm-hmm. Although, even within that, there are challenges. It just looks different. So for example, for me, I find it really, and it sounds funny, but I find it really, really hard not to like fold and put away all my laundry on Shabbat and not to re, re, like, reorganize all my closets. Like for me, it's actually, because yeah, I don't have time in the week to do it. And then I'm sitting on Shabbat. I have the whole day ahead of me and I have this cupboard that's completely like bomb, a bomb. It's like a bomb hit it. And all I want to do is just empty everything out, sort it into piles, make it look neat and start the week off that way, right? So for me, that's a struggle for me on Shabbat. Somebody else might be a struggle not to turn their phone on, right? Somebody else might be a struggle to have to walk far. So it depends what you're used to. And so there's always, there always is an element of struggle because we actually, we resist rest. 
we resist rest. We're so used to doing and moving whatever that looks like for us that we, we don't want to just stop. And so there is a struggle in rest, definitely. There is a struggle in rest, but it's also helping us because there's a struggle to follow the parameters that got put around rest. But once we're able actually to do that, we're able to, to, to get the rest that we need. Can you explain the two souls on Shabbat? Like- so on Shabbat, there's an idea that we get an additional soul. Mm-hmm. And the idea really is very connected to what we've said. It's not that we get a, another soul, like a, a completely new soul, but rather that an, a, our soul is divided into levels. Mm-hmm. And there's only really one or two levels that are manifest within our body throughout the week. But then on Shabbat, we get raised up because... We, Again, all of the work that we've done throughout the week gets raised up on Shabbat. The this physical world gets raised up on Shabbat. And so the idea is that we access another level of our soul on Shabbat because mm. we've been raised up. So it's not that we get an entirely brand new soul on Shabbat, but rather that we're now in an elevated spiritual state where we're accessing a new level of our soul. Okay. So is the animal soul go away on Shabbat? No. Absolutely not. Okay. Then otherwise, if so, it would be very easy to do all the things that God tells us to do on Shabbat. I'd have no problem not folding my laundry. Um, the animal soul is there, but our godly soul is in a higher state. That's why the smell of the spice too, like after Shabbat, your soul is like coming back to its level. When you smell the spice, mm. the spice, you kind of like bring that energy into the so um for people like uh for for like people who are um not physically able to like walk to shul uh on shabbat are they permitted to like do like go in the car or something like like right. if, yes like, how does that work because if they're not able to go to synagogue wow yeah yeah. So this is this is one of the differences between um, Orthodox and con- and conservative slash Reform Judaism mm-hmm. is is basically this question of what happens when it becomes difficult to serve God. Then what comes first? Like me me making it easier to serve God or doing what God said, kind of no matter what. Mm-hmm. And and it's a difference of thought. And what Orthodox Judaism says is that. The important thing of Shabbat is rest, and God told us how to rest, and, one of the, and he taught us how to do that with the 39 laws of rest, and that is more important than going to shul. That's actually more important than going to shul. Is going to shul one of the... No. Oh. It's not. Really? Going to shul is not one of the 39 laws of observing Shabbat. So if somebody, so according to Orthodox Judaism, if somebody, if somebody um, has two, two, like they cannot physically make it to shul today, they can in a car. Mm-hmm. then they would say stay home because God told us how to rest. You don't get to decide. Mm-hmm. You don't get to decide that, oh, for me, Shabbat is going to shul. That's what I've known. That's how I've grown up. So I'm going to do whatever it takes to get to shul. It's like, well, well, what did God say? And what God said is that there are these laws that many of them don't make logical sense according to what we know as rest, right? Mm-hmm. The laws are sourced in the laws that we did when, during the time of the Mishkan, the time of the tabernacle and the Beit HaMikdash. There were many, many... The, People, the people who worked, they worked very, very hard to do all of the different services and get all of the different things going that needed to be done in the Beit HaMikdash and in the tabernacle. And God told them all of those specific things that you do, whether it's sewing or weaving or lighting fires or slaughtering animals, all the things that they did on Shabbat, you don't do them. And that's our source for Shabbat today. Our source for Shabbat today is not have the most restful experience you possibly could have. It would look, our Shabbat would look very different. It would look very different if that's what it was. Rather, it's 
God told us that the way to access this newfound spiritual level on Shabbat is not to do all the things that they used to do in the time of the Beit HaMikdash. One of which is lighting a fire, which driving in a car is, is turning on the engine and the fuel, and that's associated with lighting a fire, which is something they were not allowed to do in the times of the Beit HaMikdash, and so, therefore it's something we're not allowed to do today on Shabbat. Could you go in a wheelchair? Yes, I think you can go in a wheelchair on Shabbat. Who yes. decides that? Like, sorry, but like in orthodoxy, like because, like, I'm assuming most people in this like day and age aren't normally slaughtering animals. You know, like I just right. like I understand that like it's like halakhic like law and rule, but like who is like the decider of that? And like once that decision gets made, how is that information disseminated to like all the people who follow orthodoxy? Mm. First of all, that's a good question. Michaela, you've been raising your hand Sorry, a few times. Okay. No problem. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask, uh, hear Michaela's question and then get back okay. to you. Okay. It kind of goes back to Emily's question about okay. the animal and um, that people. So the, from what I understood, the, there's like an elevation that comes from the friction of um, the, godly, the godly soul competing with the animal soul and like that creates the elevation. And I guess the question is, like, does the um, animal soul have value in and of itself? Like, or is that, or is it always valuable in relation to the godly soul? That's a very good question. That is a good question. Sorry, I'm going to ask you a favor. Outside in, in the pram is a bottle. If you could just put a little bit of hot water inside and bring it, and then she'll be, she'll be quiet. It's at the bottom of the straw. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay, so I'm going to get to your question, and then I'm going to get to your question. Okay. Remind me your name on the time. So that's a very good question. And according to Hasidus, the answer is that the animal soul does have inherent value. Um, first of all, because without an animal soul, we would not be able to stay in our bodies. Because our godly soul, again, all it wants is to leave. <laughs> that's all it wants. There's a certain very, very, very... Um, essential level of our godly soul that wants what God wants and God wants us to stay so I'm not sorry I'm going to answer you in a second <laughs> you wouldn't want to stay in our bodies you said yeah the godly soul doesn't want to stay here <laughs> what's wrong sweetheart you're being very dramatic what are you trying to say <clears throat> really We're going to have to get you your babysitter back. She was like, every morning she was sleeping during this time, no problem. Her animal souls. Her <laughs> animal soul wants some food. So, so on that, oh, thank you so much. So on that level, like 100%, we wouldn't be where we are right now without an animal soul. So it has inherent value on its own. And the truth is that this... That's good enough. That's perfect. Thank you so much. Here you go. Oh, okay, who wants to be? <laughs> Thank you. Sorry, guys, I'm going to try to get her to the babysitter because it looks like she's not going to be sitting during this time. So, that's, I think, the most fundamental way that we need the animal soul. It keeps us, it, 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 it's a survival mechanism that helps us to be here. And God wants our godly soul to be here in our body. And the only way it can do that is with an animal soul. The animal soul pushes the godly soul to eat and to drink and to rest and to take care of itself and to all of the things that we need to do to be functional 
not only functional, but like people who thrive in this physical world, we need an animal soul to do that. And God specifically wants us in this physical world, so the animal soul is very important. Mm. Okay. You know, you were talking about how God gives us challenges. Do you think that like could go back to like why it's also important to have the animal soul? Because like, yes, because the godly soul actually doesn't really have any challenges. The godly soul, even as it exists in the body, is in a constant state of joy and love. Mm-hmm. It doesn't worry, because the godly soul is is in a constant state of trust of God. Mm-hmm. It has full, complete, what we call bitachon trust. And so it's never really worried. Mm-hmm. So it's very, we, we need to try and tap into that as much as possible, even when confronting the challenges, right? Yeah. But yeah, the animal soul is able to help us get through it in a way that a godly soul wouldn't. And even giving us challenges too? Like... Um, that would be more like the yetzer hara, like the, the inclination that sways the animal soul. The animal soul is pretty neutral in terms of that it's a survival method. It's not a bad thing not a bad thing um but the way that it approaches challenges is very different i was going to say one more thing about that oh one more thing about the animal soul there are there are many advantages but the animal soul is extremely passionate and the godly soul is very calm and chill and quiet and so actually one of the things that Hasidus explains is that the animal soul teaches the godly soul how to be passionate for god how to run toward God and not just stroll. So, so th- that's to answer that. Then to go back to, to your question, um, it goes back to a lot of just the idea of the power that's... Oh, sorry, Baba. It goes back really to the power that's been invested and given over to the rabbis. Is that something that you, you learned a little bit about in the first class? About mm-hmm. like the... So really there are... Ra- oh, sorry. <laughs> I'll hold her, I'll hold her. We'll answer this question, and tomorrow, please, I'm going to get her. I'm going to figure out babysitter. We'll see if I can find. Should I take her on? I'm so sorry, guys. I will. I will definitely. That's what my mission will be today: to get her babysitter. And um, and then we're going to get into the mimer proper tomorrow. But so the idea is that we. The idea is that really that Torah doesn't change. So on the one hand, Torah doesn't change, and on the other hand, Torah changes very much, depending on... Sweetie, what's wrong? What's wrong? Okay. So sorry, guys. I really am. Okay, you know, I'm going to ask Rukh Kamaga Tolda for five minutes. I'll answer your question. And then tomorrow we'll continue. Okay. I'm really sorry. What's wrong? No, because her eyebrows are like pretty red. So if you can tell that you guys are tossing gas or going back to the She definitely like put her eyes holding on to Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like she would every morning she would basically keep sleeping while she's chill, like you know, she'd like drill some holes in the ceiling and get her bouncer. Oh so that's <laughs> the yeah. thing, the jolly jumper. It's coming in two weeks. Yeah. Just let her jump. <laughs> okay, so so the idea of like where the source of these laws come from, right? Because again, there there's resting as we perceive rest, which is the Bahamas on our phone with a whatever, you know, like a nice drink. That's, you know, or whatever we each interpret as rest, whatever that looks like. And then there's the rest of Shabbat, right? Which is, yeah, don't drive in a car and, you know, all those other things that 
Um, so obviously it doesn't say anywhere in the Torah not to drive in a car because there was no cars then, right? <laughs> right? So how do, we, how do we take the ways that they worked in the time of the Mishkan which, and in the time of the Beit HaMikdash, which is now prohibited to us on Shabbos, and then put that into things like electricity and cars and all of the modern things that we have. And so when was this decided? Each thing is decided as a new technology comes up, basically. So this is a completely random thing, but now there's this whole question of like people are making meat in a lab, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's something that the rabbis, even though it's not like commercial yet, maybe it is, I, I haven't been able to buy it anywhere, but it's something the rabbis are already starting to work on, like and talk about and debate and try and, and grasp the sources that are in the Torah and the, the Misara, the, how do you say Misara? Menorah? Misara literally means that which is passed down, but the, oh. I don't know. Well, not Menorah. There's, <laughs> There's a word that I'm not getting, but that which has been passed down from generation to generation and to look at all the, the precedents. Yeah. I love that. Okay, the precedents. I wouldn't have thought of that one. Um, the precedents that's been passed down from generation to generation and to elucidate from that what does God want from us in this situation. So the same thing happened when electricity came around. There are certain forms of mechanics that are allowed on Shabbat, like flushing the toilet. Thank God, by the way. Yeah. Like, thank God. Yeah, I was wondering that and this week. I was like, is that a but, but if you go to, like, Japan and there's this fancy electric toilet that, like, yeah. heats up and you all that, you can't use that because we, that's already... That your friend has one? Yeah, it's really... Pro- I always so, have to be like, is it on or is it off? Like, <laughs> that's confusing. So they, then already there's, like, electricity involved, and the rabbis determine that electricity is... I don't know exactly how it works, but is like lighting a fire, and lighting a fire is a clear isur, it's a clear prohibition for Shabbat, and therefore anything that has to do with electricity or turning on a fire is prohibited, and, and may, we have many things like that. Um, and it's prohibited, it's considered prohibited, like basically as much as turning on a fire. Then there's other levels that the rabbis then put in as fences around Shabbat. For example, something that we call muktzah, which is the idea that you don't move things that you're not allowed to use on Shabbat. So you're not allowed to use a phone on Shabbat and for various reasons, which I don't fully understand, something to do with the electricity and turning on and the fuse and the short circuits, I don't know. It's the idea of, I think it's connected phones as well to lighting a fire, anything really electric and batteries as well. And you're also not allowed to move it, but that's really like a prohibition put, aside, put in place by the rabbis to help you avoid ending up touching it and holding it and then turning it on at some point. So there are different levels within the keeping of Shabbat, but they're really all sourced back to this idea that there were 39 jobs that were done in the time of the temple. And anything that is doing that in some form, one of those jobs, even in a form that looks different, like then they were lighting a fire for the to burn the sacrifices and now we're turning on the engine of a car even if it looks different if the source of the idea is the same then we don't do it and who decides that it's the rabbis rabbis they learn a certain amount of torah if they've passed the test that they know enough that they've been able to look at the what do we call it the precedent that was passed down and the ways that people established laws throughout all of the generations as well as looking at the original texts they they can decide we trust them to decide what what to do with these new inventions that come up all the time. So it's like a basic like judicial process? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's, you have to pass through certain... And, and it's usually something that they come to a consensus about, but even so, there are differences of opinions, like Svaradim and Ashkenazim, because they lived in such different parts of the world. Right. So there are differences, <laughs> like there's... There's like a blech, for example, something we put to, how do, how do you cook on Shabbat in a way that you're allowed to cook? Because you're not allowed to cook on Shabbat. 
<clears throat> but there are certain ways you can heat up food, and there are differences of opinions if you're Sephardi or Ashkenazi, depending on what the rabbis in that region determine. So there's also different um, customs as well, and different ways of halacha, depending on where your family comes from. They're not dramatically different, but, you know, a little bit. Um, does anyone have any questions so, on what we said so far? Other than that, are we good? Yeah. I was yeah. wondering if you could just repeat the name of Shekhinah. Sure, sure. So Shekhinah literally means to dwell. Okay? So it comes from Veshachanti Betocham, and I dwelled among them, which is a verse from the Torah. And it's the idea of God, there's different spiritual worlds, okay? And then there's this physical world. And we're going to get into that um, shortly in this manner, speaking about what they are. Um, but the Shekhinah is the presence where God dwells in each world. So God is everywhere. Right? But then God, God is everywhere, but in a concealed way. Right? We don't experience that God is everywhere. The Shekhinah is the idea of God's presence manifesting and resting in an experienced, revealed way. So the idea is that in the temple, the Shekhinah was present. What does that mean? God is everywhere. What does it mean God's Shekhinah was present in the temple? That God was resting there in a, in a, in a condensed, revealed way that we were actually able to tangibly feel in some way. Okay, and not everybody can always feel the Shekhinah at all times, but it's, it's a more condensed presence and resting of God in some areas. So for example, it's brought that the Shekhinah rests when 10 Jews gather together, no matter what they're doing, the Shekhinah rests there. So right now the Shekhinah is resting with us. We don't necessarily feel it tangibly, but Hashem's presence is more experienced and condensed here right now than let's say in some place where there's only one or two Jews gathering. Okay, so it's God's presence. Okay, so we're going to continue tomorrow with the idea of rest. We're moving away from Shabbat now. We mentioned Shabbat. <clears throat> oh, actually, the beginning of, of page 7, we're going to mention Shabbat briefly. And then we're going to go into the rest that was brought about by Noah. Why does Noah represent rest? Why are the waters that were destructive, destroyed an entire planet, called waters of Noah, which means waters of rest, waters of peace? That doesn't really make sense. So that's what we're going to try and understand tomorrow, okay? And please God, Kayla will be taken care of somewhere else. <laughs> and we're going we're gonna to actually do a little bit more of actually reading inside tomorrow, okay? Thanks for everyone's patience today. And um, I'll see you all tomorrow. I'm going to leave this here. We didn't find the teacher's version, right? Thanks so. I'll leave it the teacher's version. Okay. Thanks to all the babysitters. <laughs> Appreciate it. But then I was like, yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so there was so in the time of the temple, on a holiday, there were certain things that they were allowed to do that they weren't allowed to do on Shabbat. Yeah. And one of those things was like cooking oh, and boiling yeah. water. And so you're allowed to heat up water.